Let's, let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you for giving us your word. Father, we thank you that you, you are who you are. You could be, you're the only God in existence. There's no other God to rival you. And, and you, could, you could be however you wanted to be. You could be mean and cruel if you wanted to. You could, uh, you could have put us here just for your entertainment if you wanted to. And nobody could have done anything about it. We take for granted, we, we so take for granted the fact that you are good, that you are perfectly good, and that you love us so much. We, we don't deserve it, but we are so, so thankful. Father, I pray that as we look at your word and look at the words that you have spoken to us, that they will change us and that we will apply them to our lives. Open our minds and open our hearts. Open our understanding to you, Father. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, there's something that we need to realize with God. He is holy. I mean holy. The Bible says he is holy, holy, holy. That was the Hebrew way of saying you are oh so, very so, very much so holy. You, you are holy, just is not good enough. We just got to keep on saying it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, and the thing is, we want him to be holy. Don't forget that. We don't want him to not be holy. We don't want him to not be perfectly just and good. That, if, you, if you had a God, that's the kind of God you want. One that is perfectly just and good and holy. You don't want him to compromise on his goodness. Because the moment that God compromises being good, we're all in trouble. Very much so. We, we take for granted, but we are so thankful that he is perfectly good. But with that comes the fact that we recognize that we are not. We are sinful by nature. Um, you can blame it on Adam and Eve if you want, but it wouldn't matter because if it would have been you instead of Adam and Eve, we'd just be blaming you. So take it easy on those. Um, take it easy on them because, you know, we're not the ones everybody's blaming. But we are sinful by nature. Um, but God loves us. He's holy. We're sinful. That immediately creates a disconnect. But he loves us. And it's his love that creates that reconnect. That, that way for us to be connected back to him can only be explained by his love. There's no other explanation for it. Um, he loves us, and so he's made a way for us to, have, to be atoned for, for our sins to be atoned for. Um, we're we're going to look at that as cl most clearly seen in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Now we've got to keep in mind, this is Isaiah the prophet. And the prophet Isaiah has actually been given a vision of the throne room of God. So it would be just the same as if it was me or you. And God had given me and you, had, had transported us in a vision to the throne room of God himself. And he, he sees God seating, seated on a throne. He's in the presence of God himself sitting on a throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. Now I just want to say a little side note here. 
The Bible mentions angels. The Bible mentions demons. But the Bible clarifies that demons are in fact angels. They were, they were angels in heaven who fell from God's grace by, through sin. So they rebelled against God. Demons are in fact just fallen angels. So when we talk about Satan, we must keep in mind, Satan himself is as powerful as people try to make him out to be, is in fact just a fallen angel. Angels can only be in one place at one time. They're not omniscient like God. They don't know everything like God does. So Satan himself is limited by the fact that he's a creature just like we are. He can only be at one place, one time, trying to mess with people. And he's not perfectly omniscient and all-knowing. And God has set hedges around us, the scripture says, so that we will not be tempted more than we can handle, which is why you read the book of Job. Satan's attack on Job was to get Job to curse God. But guess what? He never did. So I want you to take that as encouragement, that God is going to protect you and hedge you in and make sure that you're never tempted by anyone, including Satan himself, which I don't think he has any idea where Yatesville is. But I'm just saying, I think he's got more important things that he's worried about because he can only be at one place at one time. But even if he himself were to come knocking on your door, God is still not going to allow him to tempt you more than you're able to resist, and God will give you a way of escape. And that should be something that you should walk away with encouragement. But here's the thing the Bible mentions. The Bible mentions people. The Bible mentions angels, and we'll classify with angels demons. The Bible also mentions cherubim and seraphim. I think this is where we get the idea that angels have wings. How many people have heard the idea that angels have wings? How many people have heard the idea, and I, and I, and I don't want to make you very sad right now, but the whole idea of bells ring and an angel gets their wings. And, and you know, when, when we pass on, we will become angels and have wings. It's, that's just not biblically true. Okay, matter of fact, nowhere in the Bible does it say that angels have wings. It says cherubim have wings. I mean, seraphim, seraphim have wings. And I'm pretty sure I remember it says cherubim have wings. But these are different classes. You know, is a seraphim a type of angel? I don't think so. I think it's a creature, just like an angel is a creature, just like a person is a creature. Does that make sense? But point is, every time the Bible talks about angels, they're indistinguishable from people. They look like people. If you met someone and they had huge wings poking out of their back, you would notice. You would. What was the movie? Maybe I shouldn't bring it up because a long time ago, I don't know if it was a good movie or not. Probably not. But what was the movie with the guy who, had, who was an angel? Michael. Who, who played that? John Travolta. Okay. Remember, he had these big giant wings. You notice those kind of things. You don't meet somebody who's got big wings and everywhere they walk, feathers are falling. You know, you know this. The Bible says in the New Testament, post-Christ, the Bible says to entertain people as guests who come to your house. Don't pr- turn anybody away. To entertain them because to, to, to be hospitable to them because you may have entertained angels without knowing. This is post-resurrection. This is New Testament church. This means this is us. You could have someone that you meet on a daily basis, anywhere, gas station, coming back down the road, walking on... That's what everybody always thinks. They're walking down the road. I wonder if it was an angel. I'm just saying it's true. The Bible says that angels are walking among us and you may entertain them, 
be hospitable to them, care for them, and never even know it. Why? Because they look just like people. But here's, here's, here's where that comes in, the seraphim. Now, seraphim is, is given that title, and so I can't pretend to know all the details of seraphim. I can't, uh, but this is what the Bible calls it, so that's what it is, a seraphim. A seraphim has six wings, and we can confidently say that. But they're covering their face and their feet in the presence of God Almighty. This goes to add to the fact of how holy God is, that they are covering their eyes from the holiness of God. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The, foundation of the, the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, and this is Isaiah's response when he's in the presence of God, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king the Lord of armies. This is the presence we always see when people come into the manifest presence of God. They fall to their face. They tremble. They, they, they say to themselves, woe is me, because they recognize the holiness of God and they recognize the sinfulness of themselves. And so when the scripture says on the last day that every tongue will be silenced, that no, no mouth will open, nobody's going to be talking, this is what it's talking about. Everyone, no matter where they lived, when they lived, how they lived, everyone will recognize God is holy, I am not. And that immediately causes a big problem for us. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. What is an altar? It's a place where they burn sacrifices, is it not? This is in the presence of God. So I would have to just go out on a limb here. Keep in mind, this is not in Scripture, but I'm, I'm going to make a correlation here. The altar represents the sacrifice that is sufficient to atone for his sins, which would represent Jesus' sacrifice. Okay? Jesus' sacrifice from that altar, the, 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 the coal from the altar coming and touching Isaiah's lips atoned for his sins. And Scripture tells us in the New Testament that the altar and everything, the tabernacle and all of the Old Testament things that they had, they were all shadows of what was the reality in heaven. Remember that in the New Testament? Hebrews? Hebrew, author of Hebrews tells us that all these things that the Israelites had, the tabernacle, the, 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 the altar, the, um, the, the, the lamps, and, and all these things that were so clearly spelled out to Moses that how that they should performs uh, worship. All of these things were shadows of the real reality of those things in heaven. And so here's the actual altar in heaven with God. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord asking, 
Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. And we can just stop right there. If I didn't have a lot more I wanted to say. But that's it. I mean, that is the culmination right there. Isaiah recognized the holiness of God and that he didn't deserve to be in the presence of God. He knew he was sinful. He knew he didn't deserve to be there. And God said, I know this too. I'm holy, you're sinful, I know. But I've made a way for your sins to be wiped clean. I've made a way for you to be atoned for so that you who were sinful can no longer, can now be holy. You who were sinful can now be holy and be in my presence and we don't have to have anything separating us anymore. We don't have to have any, any, any reason for you to be afraid of me anymore. I did that for you. That's what God says. I did that for you. And what is Isaiah's response? I pray that it's all of our responses. Gratitude, thankfulness, and desire for obedience. A desire to please God. A desire to do what God wants us to do. Just you, I know what position I was in, and I know you got me out and I didn't do nothing. That's, that's Isaiah's mindset. I know where I was and how much trouble I was in, and I know you got me out of it and you made me right with you, and I didn't do anything. You performed the sacrifice. You did it. Now you need something? Let me help you. I'll do it. You need somebody to go say something to somebody? I'll go say it. You need, and it doesn't matter what God said. I mean, God said, I need somebody to speak a message. God could have said, I need somebody to move Mount Everest to the other side of the planet because I just messed up when I put, I don't know what I was thinking when I put it over there. I really need somebody to pick, move the whole mountain to the other side. I guarantee you, Isaiah would say, it's going to take me a while, but I'll do it. I'll do it one basket load of rocks at a time. I'll convince everybody to help me. I don't care what it is you want me to do, God. I will do it. That's Isaiah's mindset. It's a mindset of obedience. That's how you know when you got the right heart. That's how you know when you, when, when you appreciate what God has really done for you. Because the opposite of that is to say, oh, I'm atoned for, my sins are clean. Oh, that means I can just sin as much as I want, right? You got more of them coals? So if I go back to doing whatever I want to do that you don't want me to do, all this stuff that Jesus had to die for, all this sin, if I can just go back to living a sinful life, you got more coals at the end of my life you can touch me with? That's, you know, obviously nobody ever says that. But we can deceive ourselves. The scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can cure it? And what's the answer? Only God. God can give us a new heart. And so through regeneration of the Holy Spirit, God can make us new. Give us a new heart. Put his spirit within us. Cause us to want to obey him and please him not want to just live sinful against him and then hope that he's got another coal at the end of the day. This is the heart of someone who's been changed. Isaiah, this is the heart of someone who's been saved and he knows it. And he replied, God replied, go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. 
Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Now, I need to take a second just to clarify this. Because usually people's initial thought when they read this is to think, God doesn't want them to be saved. God wants them to be lost. God wants them to be confused. God doesn't want, God must hate them. Let me, let me give you two things. He told him what to say. This is prophetic of what's going to happen. Go tell them what's going to happen is they're not going to listen. Tell them the truth. They're just going to close their ears. They're not going to open their eyes. They're not going to open their ears. They're not going to listen. They're not going to turn back. But to make sure that you understand that it's not God's desire that they perish, but that it is God's desire that they hear. It is God's desire that they turn back, just so that you're not confused. This was what God told Isaiah to do and go and say, right? So what you have to do now is look at the rest of the book of Isaiah and look, what did he say? What was the message that he continued to preach? And when you read his message through the book of Isaiah, what you will see is he continues to preach and tell them to repent because God is going to judge them. Turn from your evil ways because God is going to judge you if you don't. Turn back to the Lord. Quit serving false gods because God is going to send us into exile if you don't. He did not go out and preach a confusing message and lead them astray and teach them the wrong way that, so that they would not be saved. Do you see the difference? If you, want to hear, if you want a clear understanding of exactly what God was saying here, just read what Isaiah preached the rest of his book. And you'll see, God was not being unclear, he was being very clear. He wants you to turn your heart back, but he knew they wouldn't. So you cannot use this verse. I don't care who you are or what you say. You're not convincing me. You cannot use this verse to say, well, God hated them and he didn't want them to be saved. That is so far from the truth. Then I said, which is the proper response, until when, Lord? Until when? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. The Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness Though a tent will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth or the oak that leaves the stump when failed, the holy seed is the stump. So this is what God told Isaiah. I need you to go speak to this message to these people, and they are not going to repent. And by the way, I need you to do it all the way up into the exile. I need you to be there to the end. I need you to stay there to the end. They're not going to turn. There will be an exile. I need you to go through the hard times. I need you to do the right thing knowing hard times are coming. And Isaiah could have ran off like Jonah. He probably would have got swallowed by a giant uh, dinosaur and brought back, but he could have. But he, he said, yes, sir. Send me. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be tough. And I know I'm probably, probably going to... He, I mean, Isaiah had no idea what was going to happen to him. He might, he might have thought that he was going to die in the exile. He might have thought, I'm going to be slaughtered. I'm going to be killed by the sword. But I'm not leaving this city if one person's going to open their eyes. And I'm not going to leave this city because God told me to stay here until there's no city left. Because Isaiah knew he was sinful. 
And Isaiah had seen God. And Isaiah saw that God desired for him to be forgiven and forgave him. And Isaiah said, life or death, bring it on. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. But he did promise that the remnant would return. In chapter 7, this was uh, chapter 6. In chapter 7, God tells us through Isaiah, gives us a prophecy that God is going to give us a sign. He said, a virgin will will give birth and name him God with us, Emmanuel. And then, in chapter 9, Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah, who would reign on David's throne forever, will be called Mighty God and Eternal Father. I'm going to try to go through this real quick. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. So he's talking about after the exile. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot and the bloodied garments of war will be fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I want to mention this because I've mentioned it before. I am fully convinced because the New Testament talks about how we have been given, been, um, the New Testament talks about how we know the mystery that the prophets of old yearned to know. Okay? We have been revealed the full gospel of Jesus Christ, that the prophets of old didn't even know, that Abraham wanted to look into. And so I believe that prophets, the faithful prophets of the Old Testament, many, many times, and I believe this is probably one of them, many times God gave them a message, and I want you to speak this to my people, that they didn't even understand. Think about it. Isaiah is speaking to the people, a prophecy from God, and he said, a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. Immediately, okay, this is going to be the Messiah. All right, I'm with you. I got you. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. Okay, that sounds like a good Messiah. Mighty God. What? Eternal Father. How? How? is the Messiah who will be a boy born to us. How is he going to be called Mighty God? And how can he be the Eternal Father? I know who the Eternal Father is. Yahweh. And so I'm sure Isaiah was probably sitting there thinking, God, are you sure? Did I miss something? Let me, let me fast again. Let me try again. I don't think that the prophets fully understood exactly how all this was going to play out. And I think God intended it to be that way. Because he was going to make sure that nobody, including Satan and all the powers of evil, were not going to be able to stop him. 
They weren't going to figure it out before until it was too late. But this is a clear prophecy that a, a, a boy will be born from a virgin and he will be called Mighty God and Eternal Father. Why? Because he was. God exists as a trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. But they're all one God. And God himself was born to us. His name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. Even that part I'm sure Isaiah was a little confused about, but thought, okay, well, I get it. God's with us. God is with us. No, no, no. God was with us in the person of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I'm going to skip a little bit forward. I've got a lot more here. I'm not going to be able to get through it. But I'm going to try to give you my last point. So this same God who is holy and powerful and loving, who came to earth to live with us, there's one more thing I wanted to really point out that you see in Isaiah, and that is God is the only God. There's only one. We are not a New Testament church. We're, we're not a branch of Judaism that used to believe there was one God, and now we believe there's three. The Father and the Holy Spirit is three different. We don't believe that. We one God. That one God exists as three And I've had people say to me several times, I think my batteries are just about gone. We're going to try this one. Can you hear me? Okay. <clears throat> we do not believe that God is three different gods. He's one God. He exists as three persons. And I've had people tell me that don't believe this. Um, I've had conversations with people who just said, that don't make any sense. You can't be your dad and your son at the same time. That's nonsense. You can't be the father and be the son. They're different people. Yeah, they are different people, but they're one God. God exists as three persons, people, persons. But he's still one God. And you say, well, he can't do that. And I say to you, why not? Now, we're people. We know how we can exist, right? We can exist at one place at one time. What are the rules? That's the rules for his creature that he made. What are the rules for a God? Well, the only way you can say what the rules for God is, if you had a bunch of gods, you could compare and say, well, well, I can compare all these different gods, and I can say, well, this is the rules for what a God has to be and can be and can't be. No, 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 no. God can be however, exist however. He can be whatever he wants to be. There's no reason why God can't exist as three persons and still be the same God. There's no reason why he can't. He does. But there's one thing that's clear. He is the only God in existence. The only one ever. Isaiah 44, verses uh, a lot, 1 through 24, and then some more. Um, I'm going to try to scroll through here and, and pick the ones uh, that kind of harp on the point that I'm talking about. Verse 5, he says, God is saying, okay, Let's, we're just going to read them. All right, we're just going to read them all. All right, you ready? And now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord your maker. 
the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on this thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will sprout among the grass like poplars by flowing streams. Now here he's promised, I will pour out my spirit on your descendants. Okay, this is one of those prophecies. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will use the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and take on the name of Israel. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of armies says, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. And this is going to sound very familiar to you for Revelation. This is what we hear him say in Revelation. I am the first, I am the last, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. He says, there is no God but me. Who, like me, can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me. Since I have established an ancient people, let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Who makes a god or casts a metal image that benefits no one? Look, all its worshipers will be put to shame, and the craftsmen are humans. They all will assemble and stand. They all will be startled and put to shame. The iron worker labors over the coals, shapes the iron idol with hammers, and works it with a strong arm. Now I want you to picture this in your mind. They are making false gods. The iron worker, he's laboring over the coals, shaping the idols with hammers, working it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry and his strength fails, the iron worker. He doesn't drink water and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human form, like a beautiful person to dwell in a temple. He cuts down cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. So here's a picture. He takes a tree. He cuts it down. He carves it. Some of that tree he uses to make a fire to stay warm. Some of that tree he cuts up into pieces of wood to make a fire for his oven to bake bread. And other parts of that tree he carves out an image of a god and then he sits it in a temple and he worships it. And God is saying, what? You know it's a tree, right? He burns half of it in a fire, and he roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it. Save me, for you are my God. And God is saying, He can't save you. It's a block of wood. You know this. You intuitively know this. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see 
and their minds so they cannot understand. No one comes to his senses. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Should I make something detestable with the rest of it? Should I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray, and he cannot rescue himself or say, Isn't there a lie in my right hand? Isn't there a lie in my right hand? And I, you can read the rest of that. You can go on and read the rest of Isaiah 44, 45 chapters. The chapters 44, 45. But I just want to stop right there. False gods are easily proven false. Isn't this a lie? I mean, can I look at this and know this was a truth? Isn't it obvious? But see, we serve a true, real, living God. And the evidence that we have for his existence is insurmountable. There are atheists, lots of them, Y'all familiar with Stephen Hawkins? What is Stephen Hawkins? Bill Nye? Oh, he can't stand Christians. He can't stand Christianity. There are lots and lots of big name atheists who would love to see Christianity fall flat on its face. All they would need to do is provide the evidence. And it aggravates them to no end that we have so much evidence in our favor that our writings are restore, are reliable and historically accurate that we have writings from first and second centuries that still show us that what they said then is still what they said now we have dead sea scrolls that predate Christ predate Christ before Christ was born we have dead sea scrolls of the old testament and an entire copy of the book of Isaiah so that we know that these prophecies that were written hundreds and even up to thousands of years before Christ were not fabricated and made up after Christ or changed. You ask me what's some of the best evidence we have. Well, besides creation in the human cell, which I won't get into, the human cell, I believe, scientifically, if you want from a scientific standing, bi biology, life, cell, that, honestly, I believe is the strongest scientific evidence that we have that creation is true and evolution is false. And if you're not familiar with it, you can always Google um, uh, James. I'll get back to you. He's Jewish, actually. He's a, Jew, he's a Messianic Jew. He was raised Jewish. He came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, he's a biochemist, and he studies biology. And he will he will he he just lays it out from someone with PhD, just the smartest man I can think of, just how it's impossible for life to have created by itself. Impossible. Abiogenesis from non-life to life is scientifically impossible. But I think the best evidence is the prophets, because you can argue science all day, you can argue all these things, but when someone says, makes a prophecy about something that's going to happen in the future. And they make another prophecy, and they make another prophecy, and they make another prophecy, and they make another prophecy. And another guy who didn't live at the same time, 100 years before him, made a prophecy, and another prophecy, and another prophecy, and another prophecy. 
And then you have this book, this collection that was written over 1,400 years of all these prophecies. And they all came true in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born in Bethlehem. He was the Messiah. He was, as we'll get to next week with Isaiah, he did die for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. All these prophecies come true in one person. Then that's when I say, I believe it. That's the strongest evidence that anybody could ask for. Something beyond the natural. Something supernatural. Because telling the future, that's supernatural. Telling things that you don't know and can't possibly know, that's supernatural. I think supernatural explanations are very, very good ones. And I believe it. I believe this word because it's proved itself to be true. I believe it because it changed the whole nation. I believe it because everything that happened in it, the effects can still be seen today. And Christianity can stand up to any question, whether it's scientific, whether it's historical, whether it's geological, whether it's philosophical. People are just not smart enough to come up with this and then for it to actually happen. We could, you can think about all these different false leaders. Jim Jones. You know, all these false leaders, they make all kinds of crazy prophecies and stuff. You know, remember when Haley's Comet came through and they had that, that, that group that said they were going to all drink poison, kill themselves, and ride Haley's Comet out of here? I mean, false prophets always get found out. They're false. I, I can even go so far to say, um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses. It's based on those who started Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, the prophecies that they made about the second coming and that Jesus was coming back and they built this big elaborate home in Florida that they were going to house Abraham and Moses and, and these prophets, that they were going to come back and live among us because the, 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 end, the end of the apocalypse was coming. And they set dates. The first one was at the end of the 1800s. The, the next one was at 1917 was the next date. And then the, next, the final date was the 1970s. And so they built this big elaborate home because they were coming back and they were all going to live in these homes. And then all of a sudden, for some strange reason, the watchtower called all, sent for all the Jehovah's Witnesses kingdom halls. Y'all see all these kingdom halls around here? They told them, hey, send in all your old books. Send them back to us. We're going to destroy them all. Why? Because they didn't want them reading through those old books and seeing all these false prophecies they had made. You can still get copies of them today. I have copies of them. I purchased copies of them. All these false prophecies can easily be proven false. But these never were. Because they're true. If I'm going to stake my eternity on something, I want to stake it on the truth. And I want to be convinced. And I'm telling you, as all the studying I've done, I am convinced. This is true from every angle you want to look at it. And the beautiful thing about it not that he's just the only God, but that he's a good God. Because it's true. He is the only God. We are so lucky. He's as good as he is.
We are so lucky that the only God in existence loves us so much that he was willing to die for us. And so our response for the rest of our life should be, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for being so good. Father, we thank you that you are the only God. Father, we're glad that there's not multiple gods competing over, over what happens, that you can know the future, that it is certain, it is sure, it is determined, and you will not let anything change it because there is no power in this world, not even Satan and all of his demons put together. They, they, they are powerless against you. The scripture says that Jesus said that he saw Satan fall out of heaven like a bolt of lightning. That how, that's how easy it was for you to cast him out. Like, like a flash of lightning. That was it. Father, we thank you that you're so good. And we thank you that you desire a relationship with us. Father, I pray that there's not a single person in this room who is not committed to giving their life to you forever. Who has not said to you from their heart, Yes, Lord, I want to please you. I want to live my life for you. Father, that's all it takes is a change of the heart. Repenting means to turn. Just to turn from sin and turn to you. We thank you, Father. We thank you that you desire for us to be in relationship with you so much that you did all the work for us. All we have to do is surrender ourselves to you. We love you. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray.